righty. At this time, I want to invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to Genesis 6. As we read verses 1 through 8, last week we looked at this verse and we talked about what I believe is the, the principal issue here, namely that we are to be mindful of that, that, that God finds human sinfulness personally offensive and, and that judgment is the, is the logical and necessary response of a holy God to sin and that the only hope we have of avoiding judgment is God's grace. That is the main point right here. But these, these first few verses in this section uh, pose a conundrum to, to a lot of people. But they seem to present the, the basis or rationale of this is what was going on that was so heinous that the flood had to happen. It wasn't just sin in general. It was what was happening here. So we should expect that what's happening here is of a shockingly egregious nature to warrant God wiping out every living thing under the sun. And so I want to invite you to turn with me as we read the words of Moses inspired by the Holy Spirit. We read, When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. For I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, this is God's word to us. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the living God stands forever. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you so much for your word to us. Grant that we would be diligent students of your word. For in your word is life. Grant that we would be humble, even as we have conviction. We ask that this time spent in your presence, even now, would bring you great glory and great edification to us. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. All right, brothers and sisters, so... Like we said at the beginning of the service, next week we will commence our in-depth look at the doctrine of sola scriptura, that fundamental doctrine on which biblical religion is based. Uh, 
the idea that Scripture and Scripture alone is the sole final authority, the sole final arbiter of truth, of what is right, of what is wrong. And so now, today, we get to have what I think is, is an interesting uh, case study in applying some of the exegetical principles that derive from sola scriptura to how we confront passages like this that seem to be very confusing and confounding. Chiefly, who or what are the sons of God? And who or what are the daughters of man? And who or what are the Nephilim? That's, that's, those are the questions. That's more than one. So please remember that part of the reason this is a nice case study and exegetical method is precisely because what I said last week, that the major views that have been presented throughout church history, none of them, none of them strike at the core of, of of orthodoxy, okay? In, the, in a very real sense, in a very real sense here, this is, this is an intramural debate amongst believers. You can be a sincere believer and totally disagree with what I'm about to tell you, okay? So have your position on this, but recognize that this is one of the quote-unquote hard passages. There are passages that are hard because we don't like the, the implications, the practical ramifications. Ooh, ouch, that stings. <clears throat> there are hard passages that are hard, difficult for us to understand. Now, we're going to talk about that fact in a future sermon in a few weeks, but understand that God has a purpose for difficult passages, but this is one of them. Okay, so let's have humility as we, as we inform our own position. But nonetheless, God calls us to be faithful stewards of his word. He does not call us to flit and flight around and just, he wants us to have conviction about what his word is saying. And so I believe that it's important for us to look at this type of passage. And setting the scene for what was going on that was so heinous that the flood became the inevitable consequence. Bottom line up front, I'm going to take you through my theological exegetical journey, and I want you to see from this some principles for how I approach Bible study and have some principles then that you can use for your own study of God's Word. Okay? There are Four basic, three really, but one, one is kind of a, just a deviation, uh, views that have been presented throughout church history. The first, the most ancient view is that the sons of God are fallen angels and the daughters of men are human women and the Nephilim are their offspring. That was the view of ancient Judaism. It was the view of Christianity until the fourth century. But starting in the 4th century up until uh, about the early 1800s, the Christian view was that the sons of God 
are the godly line of Seth, and the daughters of men are the, uh, the, the line of Cain, and that the intermarriage of godly and ungodly peoples is the big sin here, and it produced people of renown, but the subject of the Nephilim themselves is kind of a question mark. Then you have a third view, which is really modern, and it says that the, uh, the sons of God are basically tyrant kings. They're just local chieftains, tyrant, who were tyrants, who took uh, any, any, any woman they wanted as their wife. And that was a bad thing. Then, then the final view, which is kind of a combination of a couple views, says they're tyrant kings, but, but they were possessed or something. They were possessed, and, and that's why the offspring are something other than ordinary people, is that there was a possession involved. Um, but the problem, the real big problem of, of either of those two views and the reason why most, uh, most don't hold to that, and I never was even tempted to affirm that, is what this is saying is that the, the sin of these kings was they, were, they had polygamy. But polygamy is not, not a sin in the Old Testament at all. Uh, God, many righteous kings have many wives. Um, so to, to say that it's a great sin that deserved the destruction of the planet, it seems way overwrought. Uh, to say that it's possessed people, um, that contradicts 100% of what the Bible teaches about possession. In possession, you don't have the devil entering, a demon entering someone, and they retain high-functioning capacity. Biblical possession is that they become degraded, and they're just gnashing at their teeth and gnawing at the floor, and they're just destroying themselves. So it's not really been, neither of those views have been really picked up. So the two views that have been most popular, that are the most, most plausible, are either the sons of, are either the godly line hypothesis or the fallen angel hypothesis. Those are the two that are really viable uh, with a picture. Now, I went through a theological journey. Once upon a time, uh, I, I wholeheartedly affirmed the fallen angel hypothesis. But then, then I rejected it. And I adopted the, the, the godly line hypothesis. Why is that? Well, um, th there are two big reasons why people de deny or, or why, why they want to reject the fallen angel view. And, and there are two big views why I bought into it and, and bought. Is that first, it just sounds absurd to say that fallen angels bred with human women, and produce some sort of super species, super race, it, it sounds absurd. And in fact, I have a lot of commentaries on my desk, and if you look at any of the ones, about 50% of them affirm the, the, or reject the fallen angels view, um, their chief criticism against the fallen angels view is simply that it sounds absurd. Here is... Here is John Calvin's criticism of that view. Here's his hard-hitting, exegetical refutation of the fallen angel's view. That ancient figment concerning the intercourse of angels with women is abundantly refuted by its own absurdity. 
and it is surprising that learned men should formerly have been fascinated by ravings so gross and prodigious. That's, that's the exegetical refutation of it. It sounds absurd. And it's absurd principally because it posits that spiritual beings procreated with humans. That's the first reason I rejected that fallen angel's view. And that's, that's the big reason why a lot of people do. But then it supposedly contradicts Mark 12, 25. You know, the, the religious leaders are trying to trap Jesus. And they say to Jesus, Jesus, there's, suppose there's this lady and she gets married, you know, and then her husband dies and, and, and she remarries and, and he dies and he dies. And so she's been married in, over the course of her life to like seven or eight dudes, you know, in the resurrection, whose husband is she going to be? And Jesus, in Mark 12, 25, basically, call, he tells them first that they're ignorant of scriptures. That's, that's nice. How would you feel if I just straight up told you you're ignorant of the scriptures? Anyway, that's what Jesus does to people. He tells them they're ignorant. Um, Mark 12, 25 says, For when they rise from the dead, that is the men and women, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So this, we are told, is proof that angels cannot procreate. They, they're not gendered beings. They're not anything like that. And so, there you go. Plus, on the positive side, the two-line theory uh, fits with the notion that godly and ungodly people shouldn't marry. That's well-developed in the Bible. And so, because of that, I rejected the fallen angel's view, and I adopted the godly line view. Okay? But then over the course of time, specifically as I began becoming more and more convinced of the implications of sola scriptura on not just my exegesis, but on the formation of my assumptions... I had to take another look, and I went back and I realized that the godly line hypothesis is actually based far more upon a whole lot of unproven assumptions than it is upon exegesis. And so I started having these questions, and I started noticing these things. And so I first... I noticed that the Bible never refers to a godly line of people. Uh, Sethites aren't a biblical people. Uh, what we have, when we speak of lines in Genesis, it's not showing the development of an ethnic group of a people. It's, it's showing the fount of a whole bunch of peoples. And so Sethites aren't a people. The, the only people that is special in the Old Testament is the house of Israel. Beyond that, they're just peoples. Okay, so Seth is not presented as the head of a line. Seth is not presented as the head of a people. It's just assumed that he's the head of a godly line. And, and then I realized that, that part of the godly line hypothesis was assuming that 
Genesis 4.26 referred only to the line of Seth. What does Genesis 4.26 say? That to Seth also a son was born and he called him Enosh. And in case you're wondering, Enosh is just, it just means human being. I mean, how generic of a name can you get? Human being. That's what Enosh means. So godly Seth names his son human being. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. And I realized there's absolutely nothing there that hence suggests, implies that this is only the line of Seth. It's all people, right? But then I also noticed this. We're told that Adam had many other sons and daughters. But yet what we are told repeatedly and 100% of the commentaries I have that posit the, the godly line of Seth, the worldly line of Cain, is that, is that it ignores literally every other, every, every other possibility. So what lines did all the other innumerable sons and daughters of Adam come from or contribute to? I know they're not in Genesis, but that doesn't mean they weren't there. They, they are there. It, it says he had many other sons and daughters. So it's, it's not two lines of people, the Canaanites and the Sethites. There's, there's tons of lines of people descending from Adam. So were these other lines godly? Were they ungodly? I don't know. I noticed it, the position I was affirming totally ignored all that. Then I noticed that the godly line hypothesis really overstates the biblical commands against marrying ungodly. Um, it reads back into it a Christian prohibition back into the Old Testament that's demonstrably not true. For example, in the New Covenant, we're told to marry in the Lord. Okay. Go back into the Old Covenant, and we're told, see, they had a highly developed prohibition against marrying unbelievers. Uh, the prohibitions are against marrying Canaanites. And, and really, you have to go further. And if you're talking about ungodly people marrying godly people, the Bible is actually silent in the Old Testament because there's no statement about what Jews should marry what other Jew when most of the Jews were apostates. So was it okay for a godly Jew to marry an un... That, that is totally silent in the word of God. So the case is way overstated that there's this clear line throughout the Bible when in fact it's more of a new covenant reality, not so much a biblical reality. Then I noticed that the offense doesn't seem to warrant the conclusions that everything had reached total chaos. God's going to wipe everything out because we're supposedly told that godly people were marrying ungodly people. That happens all the time. It doesn't seem to be, it seems to be kind of an over... But, but then I learned that it extrapolates from comments made by Lamech in the Cain line and from Enoch in the Seth line, and it extrapolates that both of those lines were, were consistently, Cainites were all bad and Sethites were all good. 
That, that seems to be unwarranted from the Bible. Then I realized that exegetically, look at 6.1, please. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them. That there's no reason that that man right there is any different than a few, a few words later. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. So in 6.1, everybody agrees that we're talking about people in general. But now we're told that all of a sudden, with a little bit of shucking and jiving, that sons of man here refer to line of Cain. No, exegetically, it's the same thing. Grammatically, there's, there's no way to do that. Then I noticed, and actually, I, I, I had my observation buttressed by the great Old Testament theologian, uh, Bruce Waltke, no slouch in Old Testament studies, that if you're going to assert that the daughters of man belong to any line, they certainly don't seem to fit contextually with the concept that they're the line of Cain. Why? Because remember that this whole section is the conclusion of the Toledot, the section on that lineage. Okay, look at Cain's lineage. There's not one mention of daughters at all. At all. Whose line does mention daughters? Seth's. So, Bruce Waltke points out that if you're going to hypothesize that the daughters belong to any line, then, then where are they linked contextually? They're linked with Seth's line, not Cain's line. Okay? Then I realized that the sons of God here are not presented as righteous people who get tripped up by marrying and interacting with, 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 with those you know, with those not bad girl Cainites. No, the sons of God here are not presented as choir boys. They're presented as lusty and power hungry. That doesn't seem to be godly in their presentation to me. Then I realized that in Mark 12, 25, when it, when it talks about rising from the dead, neither marrying nor given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven, that that the, we humans, when we rise, we retain our gender identity. You're male and female in the resurrection. Then I realize also that it's, it's not actually saying what angels can or can't do. It's saying what station angels in heaven have, but what if angels abandon that station? And maybe the New Testament has something to say about that. And that was the final thing. Does the New Testament speak at all to this topic. And then I realized that even with the use of the sons of God language, that it doesn't seem to make the best use of the textual data that we have. So after all this flood of stuff, I was like, wow, if I'm committed to sola scriptura, then I'm not really sure that I can continue to hold the godly line hypothesis of what was going on here. Which took me back then to reconsidering the fallen angel view. And let's start with the text. 
Because if we're sola scriptura committed, then what the text says matters. The words of scripture matter. And, and here's where part of the conundrum comes in. It says the sons of God. Okay, so forget everything we've talked about context so far. Let's just look at, let's just abstract the three words, or in Hebrew it's two words, sons of God, okay? It is true that in places in scripture, the people of God are sometimes, the Israelites are referred to in, in that kind of language that they are, that they, of being God's sons. It, it, it's also true that, that rulers are sometimes referred to as gods. That's, that's kind of weird to us, but, but ruler, human kings are sometimes referred to with the word Elohim. So what we see then, if we just look at text, the words, there is a possibility of, of a whole host of meanings, but then we have to consider another fact, that words oftentimes are, the meaning of words is not determined by the word in isolation, but by the word in context. If I say the word secretary, a whole host of concepts and duties and roles may pop into your mind. If I say the word defense, a whole bunch of words and concepts may pop into your mind. But if I string the words together, secretary of defense, you are not invited to conjure up whatever word association you can have with secretary or word association you can have with the word defense. When they're strung together as a phrase, you are invited to understand that I am talking about an office, a cabinet position within the U.S. government, the secretary of defense. And so what we have here then is the same kind of thing. We have a clause, a phrase, and what stands out to biblical exegetes is that this is a very rare phrase in the Old Testament. You see, while the concept of being a son of God is, is in the Old Testament for, for God's people, nonetheless, the phrase is not. This phrase is only found a few times in Scripture. It would be one more time in, 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 Hebrew, in, in Aramaic, but because it's not exactly the same, we, we don't count it. But even then, it refers to the same thing. But this phrase, 100% of the time when it's used, it refers to spiritual beings. For example, in Job 1.6, now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Okay? 100% of the time outside of this passage, that phrase always undeniably, unquestionably refers to spiritual beings. So, my thought is, if I'm committed to the words of Scripture, if I'm committed to Scripture interpreting Scripture, then the use of a phrase in Scripture should inform how I understand it in this context. Okay? Then I began to address the apparent absurdity of it. The apparent absurdity is that it's gross. It's stupid. How, how can angels procre procreate with humans? 
Who knows? You, you know what else we don't know, but, but no one questions? How, how does a spiritual being take on flesh in the first place? Do you know what angels in the Bible do? I mean, we're told in the New Testament to, be, to show hospitality because in so doing, some have entertained angels unaware. In other words, the angel looked, acted, felt, seemed so human that you didn't know it was not. Angels are able somehow to take on flesh with such physical gravitas that Jacob's able to wrestle with it all night. Angels eat. Angels sleep. In other words, who knows how this happens? How does possession work? Seriously. How does it work? At what part of the body is the human soul in? And how, how, does, a, how does a spiritual being come and take over a, a physical body? And, and, and where does its soul go? Because it can't totally kick out the human soul or the body would die. Well, uh, I bring up these questions and these observations simply to point out that when it comes to the intersection of the spiritual and material, we don't know a lot. So just because it sounds absurd does not mean it's impossible. Okay? The offspring. That's a big part of this passage. The offspring. It says the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These, now what does these refer to? Does it refer to the Nephilim or to the children born to the union as, as if they're two different things? I think they're, the, they're one and the same thing. And the word Nephilim is usually translated giants, but the word actually means fallen ones. And you know what? Once I started thinking about that, I, I started thinking about how ancient human civilizations oftentimes have echoes of the memory. Who's ever heard of Gilgamesh? Who's ever heard of Hercules? Who's ever heard of Maui? Come on, Disney kids, you've heard of Maui. Okay, what do these things have in common, these people? They're demigods. You know what a demigod is? It's the mythical offspring of a deity and a human. Now, no divinity there, no nothing. But, man, just like all these ancient religions have a myth that, that nonetheless appears to be the echo of the flood story memory. There appears to be a myth, a, a, an echo of the memory of these beings that they were held in honor when in fact, according to what the Bible would say, they were, they were perversions. You see, there, is, there are lines in scripture and one of the things that God is really big about is making the distinctions between kinds. So great is that distinction that in the law, you couldn't have a garment made of two kinds of fabrics. It had to be, and, and that, that, that making of distinctions between kinds and categories is huge. And so these would represent a total perversion of what God had done and what God intended and the ordinances that he set up. But then the coup de grace was what the New Testament has to say about it. 
We're told in 2 Peter 2, 4 and 5, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, what's he talking about? He's, he's drawing from the book of Enoch. He's quoting it. He's citing it. Then a, a few pages later in your Bible, maybe one page later, in Jude chapter six or Jude verse six and seven, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Once again, he's referencing the book of Enoch. Now here's what he goes on to say. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. Okay. So he says likewise here. He talks about Sodom and Gomorrah and he throws in that they did something likewise. Looking right back to what the people or the group he was just speaking of. The angels who did not stay within their own position. Why would Jude do this? Why would he say this? Because if you read First Enoch, where he's coming from, it is not ambiguous. It is clear he's talking about Genesis 6. And these certain angels lusted after human women and came and procreated with them, and they're condemned by God, and they're consigned to fiery darkness with chains. Call it absurd. But you, what you have here is the New Testament authors drawing from the book of Enoch when it speaks specifically to this point, And he references what God did in judgment to the guilty parties who were involved. So in my opinion, because I believe in sola scriptura, if the New Testament is authoritatively citing something... That matters a lot in helping me clarify what went down there. So with all that to say, as I study this passage, I see what happened is that contrary to the natural distinctions and divisions that God had established, fallen angels did not stay within their own place. They took on flesh, procreated with human women's, and they, in, they invested egregious immorality into the human race, corrupting the whole thing. And this led to God destroying everything under the sun, and it resulted in the guilty party angels being held in chains even now, awaiting the day of judgment. It should be observed, not every demon is consigned right now. But some are. That's because, according to the New Testament, of this. So, brothers and sisters, that's a glimpse of how I study the Bible. That's how I approach a passage. Those are how I make observations. Those are how I ask questions. Those are how I test assumptions. Because what I need as a student of the Word is to have my views shaped by the Word and to have my starting assumptions challenged by the Word rather than me simply saying it's absurd.
I invite you to consider how you might interpret this passage. Once again, if you disagree with everything I said, it's okay. Okay? All right. So that's the end of this message. Next week, brothers and sisters, I am so excited. We're going to kick off the Reformation in a glorious manner. It's going to be fantastic. Please pray with me.